0: So what we'll do over the next several weeks as we work our way through this, by the time we get down to verse 15 or 16, then what we'll do is we'll stop and then we'll just kind of read it as a whole and make only just a few comments, but well, hopefully you'll remember some of the details we've gone through and it will make the passage uh, more robust for you um, as you uh, as you read through it. Because that's really the whole idea uh, as we learn what the Word of God is saying is as we read the scripture, as we grow as Christians and, and the longer that we're Christians, we, we kind of bring more to the table when we read the Word of God because we have a greater understanding uh, maybe of the nuances of the words that, in this case, that Paul used. Um, uh, we'll, have a, we'll kind of remember some things maybe about the tenses of the verbs and that will kind of help to intensify or bring, bring home in application what the, what the Scripture is saying and we'll get even more out of it. So remember, we started last week as we dealt with verse 8, and now in the verse 9, we were talking about the issue of what it means to be in Him, or in Christ, uh, that, that talks about this vital union that we have with Him, this, the identity that we have, where we identify with Christ, and how that affects us as individuals, and what it's supposed to do for us. So verse 9 again reads of chapter 2 of Colossians, it says, For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So again, as he talks about this union that we have with Christ, remember that Jesus is not just a superior human being. He is divine. He is God. And so Paul is stressing, again, this union, this relationship. It's embarrassing. Sorry about that. (laughs) Turn your phones off. (laughs) Anyway... uh, This union that we have with Christ, but again, it's it's with God himself, uh, which again is a very unique thing uh, because in other religions, they don't have that. They don't talk about that. Uh, Christ is our source for strength and wisdom uh, to be able to to deal with life, to resist temptation, to live for him, uh, and also to continue to grow in our faith in Jesus Christ. So as we talked about that last week in verse 9, verse 10 then says... And you have been filled in Him. Or, some translations will say, you have been made complete. So the idea there, or the implication, is that we, in a sense, are to be totally controlled by the Spirit of God, or by Christ. But again, when we talk about being controlled, that doesn't mean that we're robotic. That's not the idea. The idea is that we submit ourselves to the Word of God, we submit ourselves to Christ... So and we, and we seek then to obey what he says as far as what we are to think about, how we are to think, how we are to reason, how we are to understand, uh, how we are to um, judge things morally, how we are to respond when it comes to the moral decisions that we make. That's what all that's talking about. Um, is, so, so we're not just left to our own human desires that we had before we became Christians. We still have those desires, but everything is really brought under the Lordship of Christ. But again, it's not just words that are said. It is this connection that we have. God is living in us and through us. And that, what's, that is what Paul is getting at. So again, Paul's main thrust is that believers have come to completion. Uh, they, they basically, there's no deficiency. So there's nothing that you're lacking from God and what you need to live the life that God has called you to live. Our difficulty is, is we're still in the, in the flesh. And we know the flesh is weak. But there's no deficiency in what Christ has supplied. Like if, 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 I guess the example would be this. So if you want me to put together, let's say, a big party for one of your kids that's turning 18, and you give me $500 to plan this party, but then I'm limited in what I can do because the budget's $500. All right, so, and I may not have the resources that I need to make the party what you are imagining it to be. But if you then just gave me a credit card and say, it doesn't really matter what you spend, I want the party to be A, B, C, and D. Well, now I have the resources that I need. If there's a deficiency in the party, now that's because of me. Because I, because you gave me all the resources that I needed and I should have put it together. So it's the same idea that when it comes to our lives as Christians, uh, which is good news and bad news the bad news is once again is that then when we sin as believers whose fault is it it's ours it's not because god didn't give us enough strength it's not because god didn't give us enough grace all right it's not that god didn't give us enough wisdom it's it's on us period (laughs) pardon me if God never declines our credit card. Though. No, but it's his credit card we're using, so it's never declined. Right. We just don't always use it. That's the problem. <laughs> we're not using it. So uh, so in a, sense we be, we, in a sense, we actually become, I guess you would say, maybe even more responsible. That may not be the right term because we're fully responsible for what we do as non-believers. But we're, as, we, as we think about what we are to do in the Christian life, we really just don't have an excuse um, when it comes to Either not doing what we should do or doing what we should do when we don't. Um, and so that's why we, we want to stress the importance of depending on Christ and then continue to grow as believers. So we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and, and move forward in this way. So we are, all of us are definitely a work in progress, no doubt about that. But Paul says these things because, again, He doesn't want believers to be pulled away by empty humanistic philosophy which is basically the if you look at all the various philosophies that are out there there's a lot of them but in the end there's certain things they all have in common and what they have in common is is that man in some way or shape or form is autonomous meaning we're not accountable to anyone we there's no one for us to submit to Uh, you submit basically only to yourself to your desires to your passions to your reason, to what you think. Uh, And that's not what the Bible speaks. We are creatures. And we are dependent creatures. And we are to be dependent upon Christ. And he, again, will supply what we need. But the philosophy of the world can be very alluring. It's very um, appealing to us. There's a lot of things just about, I, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if we can really put together a list of what American philosophy is. But there are certain ideas that we have that are very definitely American that are not necessarily bad, but they can be bad. All right? So one of the things that we admire in people, and there's a term, they don't really use it anymore. Um, they used to use it a lot um, early on in the 1900s and 1800s. And that is what an individual, want, they, what they celebrated was a rugged individualism. You can make it, you can overcome the obstacles, those kinds of things. And there's a lot about that that's, that's very good. But if that's all you have you're not going to make it because again remember that the goal is not just to be successful in the sense you have a home when you can provide for your family god desires that we live in righteousness pursue righteousness that we have a relation with him and we're seeking to accomplish his will not our will um, many times those things they do coincide but the bottom line is is uh we tend to want to drift towards being autonomous and we want God just to approve of what we're thinking. I told you before, when I was way back when I was young uh, and, and I thought football was the most important thing in the world, my, the way I treated God, I didn't do this, in, well, I did do it intentionally, I just didn't do it um, knowingly. I guess I was just an idiot. But my desire was, was I was going to play football and I wanted God to bless my plans. That's what I wanted. Uh, In fact, I I never, until I was 21, I never asked God to really show me his will because I was afraid of what it would be. Because I was afraid that it wouldn't have football in it. So what I did was I just asked God to bless my football career. And then I was going to do this in football and do that in football. And I was going to use football as a vehicle to do this and to do that. And God was going to bless it. And I didn't even give a moment's thought to asking him what he wanted. I just assumed, yep, that's exactly what he wants. Of course that's what he wants. Why would he not want that from me? <laughs> well, he didn't. <laughs> All right, and especially the way that I was looking at it, because for me it was the, the, the most important thing in my life, and it was also the second most important thing in my life, and the third most important thing in my life. All my decisions were around football. That's where I decided to go to college which didn't last long, but that's why I decided to go to college. That was what determined what I ate and how much I ate. That determined my daily activities. I mean, it determined everything. And God was just kind of, you know, pulling up the rear, so to speak, in my mind. And the Lord, in his graciousness, was no longer going to allow that. And so, as I told you before, he broke my knee. And I'm convinced that he did that. And I'm grateful that he didn't break my head. Right? He broke my knee, so he was merciful uh, when it came to that. So we need to make sure that we don't begin to view God in that way. That we only, want, we're only kind of tacking God on to bless what it is that we already want to do. I have in your notes there a quote from John MacArthur, uh, which I thought was pretty good and I want you to be able to have it in writing. So as, he says, as a result of the fall, man is in a sad state of incompleteness. He is spiritually incomplete because he is totally out of fellowship with God. He is morally incomplete because he lives outside of God's will. He is mentally incomplete because he does not know ultimate truth. At salvation, believers become partakers of the divine nature and are made complete. Believers are spiritually complete because they have fellowship with God. They are morally complete in that they recognize the authority of God's will. They are mentally complete because they know the truth about ultimate reality. So it's just some good thing to think about as far as what it means to be complete in Christ and what Paul really wants to get at. The word complete in the Greek language is the Greek word uh, uh It is in the perfect tense, which indicates a past completed action with present ongoing effect or results. So literally the translation of this verse is you are in him having been filled full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. So the idea there is that we are not wavering in our life where. At some times we have the Holy Spirit and sometimes we don't. We have all the Holy Spirit God's going to give us. <coughs> the question is, is the Holy Spirit doesn't have all of us that he that he wants. We're the ones that are wavering, but not Him. So that's what Paul is emphasizing to these individuals, so they don't have to go searching for you know because people will say this today when someone says you know I'm going to take this trip to India or take this trip to wherever I'm you know I'm trying to find myself. What they're looking for really is ultimate truth they're looking for ultimate the ultimate meaning in life or what gives life meaning we already possess all that we have all that in Christ we don't have to go looking for that so we're not gonna be swayed to go in this direction and go that direction and waste our life you know being duped by others and going off in all these different directions and trying things even for a while those there are those who have tried to use drugs in the same way now I'm not you know some people may use drugs and say they're looking for ultimate truth and that's not the case uh, but there are those who have believed, and there are several religions that believe that taking certain drugs that would, that would give you a, a, an out of body experience, or you felt like it was an out of body experience, that, that was the best way to find truth. Because you want to escape the trappings of your body, the trappings of your mind, the trappings of earth, uh, and then you'll be free to, to then be able to find out what is spiritually true or ultimate. And so they want they wanted to get into an altered state. You can do that without drugs. You you hear about sometimes rich people will go off to some Indian reservation and they're they're going to a sweat lodge. And when they go in there, the idea is to be in there really for, I mean hours, a long time. Uh, Supposedly, they're they're supposed to be looking out for your safety so you don't become dehydrated. But when you begin begin to become dehydrated, you can hallucinate. And that's part of the process that they say is where you're gonna find this cleansing or find ultimate truth. That's what people are looking for. Oftentimes what they're doing is they're looking for some kind of an experience that would change your life. And what we need to recognize is that even coming to Christ is not an experience that changes your life. It's a person that changes your life. It's just like we we talk about, uh, I guess on a human level, we'll say that marriage will change your life. But we never say a marriage ceremony will change your life. Imagine that we all go to our friend's wedding and we're all sitting in the church and they're up here and they after they say I do, he kisses the bride, and the husband says, Man, what an experience. I'm good. See y'all later. <laughs> my life. My life is changed forever. And off he goes. No, well that's not what you know, it's not the experience of the marriage ceremony that changes your life. It's marriage, ongoing, developing relationship. So what we have to recognize is even though many people are looking for these experiences, wrongfully thinking that an experience will transform your life, it can change you for a little while, right? And it can be, I guess, good or bad, depending on whatever. But it's not going to transform your life. It's not going to. Only a person can do that. And that is Christ himself. So remember we've talked before about when Paul writes about what we are positionally and what we are experientially. So, remember that, for, for that all believers are saints. Okay, we don't act like saints, but we're all saints. When Paul writes his letter, he mm-hmm. says to the saints in Colossae, to the saints mm-hmm. that are in Rome. All right, saints is just another word for believers. Every single true believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. There is no church that has the right to determine who's a saint and who's not. Being a saint is not based on what you do. If it is, none of us are saints. Right? It's what we are in our position. We are holy in one sense because we've been set apart by God for God as believers. But we also pursue holiness because we're holy. In other words, we're pursuing purity because we've been set aside by God for that purpose, for his purpose. And so there's these two aspects of our life, what we are positionally, which should give us confidence. So I am a son of God. You are a son of God. That's your position. It can never change. We talk about our justification when we become believers. Uh, it is, on one hand, one of the ways we describe it, we can use the word legally or we can use the word forensically. In other words, there's, there's a legal aspect to that. Jesus paid the price, He paid the penalty for our sin. So my sin has been punished. God poured His wrath out on Christ for my sin. So then I place my faith in Christ. My sins, they, they're paid for, they are forgiven. And so that's my position. Nothing can change that position, all right? But then at the same time, I'm growing as a Christian. I'm not everything that I should be yet. You know, I'm seeking to get rid of sin in my life, sinful habits, uh, weak habits. You know, I'm trying to to resist the flesh and live a life that pleases the Lord. And so that's what we're doing um, experientially in our lives. We gather together to worship God, to study the Bible. We're doing all those things uh, as we experience life together. But we do so because all of us are already children of God. When we die, we are guaranteed a place in heaven. None of us come to church so we can go to heaven. Because that doesn't get you there. We, it should be that we gather together because we know we're going. I'm coming here to serve my Savior, to worship my Savior, not so he will be my Savior. That's why when sometimes, you know, sometimes people will misunderstand. You know, they'll say, well, I know you're a goody two-shoe. You go to church all the time. So just ask him. Why do you think I go to church? And so you'd be amazed. Sometimes they'll say, Well, well you go to church because you want to go to heaven. You go wrong. It's not why I go to church. Because they're not expecting that. You, you, what you need to tell them is, I go to church because I know I'm already going. And then, of course, that can go in a lot of directions, uh, which is good. But, you know, I, I'm always in favor of not giving them too much information. I want to leave them guessing because I want to leave them curious. I, you know, because you know, some people have heard a lot of things about Christianity. So when you begin to say certain phrases, they think they already know it, and they, they turn it off. So you don't want them to turn it off. You, you want to keep it going. Uh, you want to keep them curious. So you have a chance to be able to talk to them more about the Lord. So again, positionally, we are already complete in Christ, but practically, we enjoy only the grace that we apprehend by faith. All right. So hopefully, the longer you are a believer, the, the better you live your life. The more righteous you, you become in your behavior, the more righteousness you pursue, uh, the more of um, the faith you understand and that you're able to apply. Uh, the more of our life we've given to the Lord um, for him to control so that we will live in a way that pleases him. So Paul is praying for these believers for their former condition to prevail in their everyday walk. He's praying for them to daily surrender their will To his perfect will and control, Paul desires that the saints find the satisfaction of every spiritual want in Christ and in Christ alone, not in something else. So that's why we don't need to go and seek experiences. And that's where some churches sometimes uh, are misdirected or maybe misdirecting others. Is they will push, something's happening at the church next week, you want to be here, it'll be an experience you'll never forget. That's really horrible to say because now what we're beginning to say is there's this, there's this thing you, you need to get. And so if you don't respond in a certain way, if you don't come and think, wow, this is really fabulous, there's something wrong with you. That, that's kind of what they're setting you up for. And so when you hear of these churches sometimes having different events um, and maybe unusual things happen, that's what, they're, that's what they're pushing. Come here to experience this. And so that's why we want to be careful. Sometimes people say, well, when I was in church today, I, could, I really felt the presence of God. Well, you have to be careful with that, because I don't even know what the presence of God feels like. I mean, I think I do, but it's not described in the Bible. All right? So it's okay to say that the service was emotional. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing, nothing wrong with saying that I really connected with what was going on today. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you saying that, I, that I, I felt like I was closer to the Lord. You can say that too. But what I have to be careful to say is when we make statements that are a little bit more objective sounding that may not be true or accurate because it becomes misleading. Imagine if you tell because and you don't know what's going on in other people's lives, so you don't know where they are emotionally or spiritually. So you're tell, so let's say you tell an individual, and you're you don't mean anything bad by this, but you say, you know, I don't know what's going on, but the last six weeks in church, and I know you felt it too, and man, it's like God was just right there. Now let's say that person is thinking. and they felt nothing well they can take it in a lot of ways has god rejected me how come i don't feel that what's wrong with me or what's wrong with you were you drinking before church i mean what's i mean they don't know what's going on right it could be all kinds of things and so we want to be careful with how with how we say things and again i'm not saying that you can't ever talk to a person. there's oftentimes we can say things that can be misunderstood but what I'm trying to get at is where some denominations do this more than others where it's all about certain experiences and so we really want to do our best to try to avoid that so one of the big areas that's happened in churches is is the whole approach to music it's still a big quagmire in some places and some have this thing well when we do our music in church the goal is to get people ready to hear the word of God that's not what it's for Uh, um, If you have to have some emotional experience to music to get ready to hear the Word of God, something's wrong with you. We should want to hear that. The idea is is for us to express our hearts to God in gratefulness and worship for who He is and what He's done. Whether you feel certain things or not isn't the point. We all, we know, the Bible even says, and I think it's, we take it as being literally true, make a joyful noise to the Lord. So when we sing, it's not always harmony. It's not always beautiful. But you know what's really cool? is when everyone's singing. This past Sunday, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a huge church, but it, church sings pretty good. And there was a song, I remember, uh, I, I, I'm really bad when it comes to the years. I think we learned this one song three years ago, and we kind of struggled through it, but it was the last hymn we sang before I preached Sunday. Man, it was just really cool. There's times, because you know, I said up here, there's times I stopped singing. Just so I can hear it. It's man, it's awesome, and I even get as we say in Hawaii, chicken skin, all right. Uh, and it's really cool to hear believers singing together these incredible truths about God and about Christ. It really, I mean, it's uplifting. You can try to not be uplifted, but man, I, it's really good stuff. And so um, the idea then is but we're not pushing. So you can have experiences, there's nothing wrong with those. but We don't want to make it sound like everybody has to experience the same thing or that we are experienced focused um, because that may not be the case and we're all built differently emotionally and that's not what's central um, to, our, to the faith that we have. What is central to our faith is the person of Jesus Christ. And, then what, is, and what is central to that is the truth about Jesus Christ. And then our goal is for us to live in submission to the truth of Jesus Christ and his commands. And to seek to do that, not only when we gather together as believers, but even when we go home and whether we're alone or with a family or whatever, we, we want to be there at like consistency and then share the message of Christ, the love of Christ with others. Uh, and, and everything else really is icing on the cake. Um, and that can be really good. So that's what Paul is wanting to to happen here with these believers um, and what he wants them to do. So, moving on, look at verses 11 through 15 of, sec- of Second, uh, I mean, of Colossians chapter two. So again, he begins with the words "in him." Now, some, I, I think I shared this with you before. Sometimes in the Greek language, the word order is not always the same. So, when you look at the Greek language, and here they've done it, uh, but sometimes in the Greek language, the, whatever the first words are, that's normally the emphasis that the writer is making. So here it makes sense grammatically in English to make these first, but in the Greek language, it is the, the words in him is also first in that verse because that's what Paul is emphasizing. So it's in him or in Christ. So in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, Again, in Colossians uh, 2, verses 9 through 15, Paul is explaining that the believer has been made complete in Christ through his identification with Christ. That means our identification with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And there are some significant benefits to that. So remember that when we identify with Christ, some individuals, normally, normally this would be maybe unbelievers or those who are more liberal, they might say, That well, I believe in Christ, but I don't believe in the Christ of what, let's say, the Baptist church believes. I believe in the Christ of love. I believe in the Christ of grace. I believe in the Christ of forgiveness. But we don't have a right to do that. You believe in the whole Christ, or you don't believe in any Christ. So the idea is, is that when I identify as a Christian, when you identify as a Christian, I belong to Christ. That is Christ, the perfect God-man who lived the perfect life and died for sin and was buried and rose again and is returning. That's who I identify with. That's Christ. And so that's what, again, Paul is emphasizing here with that phrase, in him, and this idea that we are made complete in Christ. So the, so the short way of saying that for the believers, if we're talking to each other, like if I'm talking to Matt, I would I might just say, you know, yeah, the, the bottom line is what we preach is the person and work of Christ. He knows what that means. He knows that we are teaching what the Bible says about who Christ is, that he is God's son, that he is God, that he is perfect, that he really came in the flesh. He's 100% God. He's 100% flesh. He lived the perfect life. He knows that that means all of that, that he really did die. He really was buried. He really did rise again. The work of Christ is what, is what he died for. What was the purpose of his death? That's what we mean by the atonement, by the redemption. And, so, and that when he did that, he, he died for sinners. He died in their place. He died to forgive sin. He was their substitute. That's, all of those things are meant in the phrase, the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's the shorter way of saying it, but that's always what we're emphasizing. That's why, again, when you want to evaluate any denomination or a church that you might be unsure of, or maybe your friend goes to and you're not sure, is all you have to do is find out what do they believe and teach about Christ. That's it. You don't have to know all the other things. You don't have, you don't have to have a degree in theology. Um, they might even be whacked out in some of the areas. But if, they're, but if they're whacked out when it comes to who Christ is, it doesn't matter. They got it wrong. And, and that means they're not Christian. And, we, and of course, we live in a country, we live in a culture, where that can be very unpopular to say that. To say that someone's not a Christian. People say, well, who gives you the right to judge? I say, well, I, I don't. I'm just going by what the Bible says. This is what the bible says the bible says this and so i am believing and i am expressing what the bible says And so sometimes we're afraid to deal with absolutes uh, sometimes we may think that it makes us sound like we're being arrogant we don't want to be arrogant when we declare what we know to be true but you don't want to back down from what you know to be true and so when it comes to who christ is these are basically the non-negotiables this is what you must believe If you are going to call yourself a Christian if you are a Christian you believe these things if you don't believe these things what we mentioned about the personal work of Jesus then you're not a Christian as I mentioned it is possible for some individuals who are brand-new believers to not have a handle on all those things yet because they know nothing about the Bible except that Jesus died for our sin he lived perfect and they were convicted of the sin and they and they believe what the gospel says but they will very quickly learn those things and because they're true believers, they will believe them. They will. They won't say, well, now when I became a Christian and I didn't know this stuff about Jesus being God. I mean, I knew he was a son of God and my understanding was incomplete. But if you say he was God, that, I just, that just doesn't happen. If it does, then that person didn't become a, a Christian because you're denying what Jesus said about himself and what the Bible says. Uh, so we can be Absolutely sure as to exactly what the Bible says about many things. In particular, what it says about Christ. And that has a very (coughs) direct benefit, a very direct impact on who we are as individuals. It has an impact on our intellect, on our emotional state, on our, I guess you might even call it our psychological state, definitely on our spiritual state. Um, it, It is significant and it means something. So here, as Paul goes through all this, again, the idea is, is when they are, these believers are confronted with false teaching, even though we normally try to attack it by pointing out what's wrong with it, Paul's approach is to accentuate the positive. In other words, what is true about you? And once you understand who you are in Christ, the rest of those things will fall into place. This is a famous saying, I don't know who said it first, but basically what he said, we we said things similar to this before, you will never possess any more of Christ than you do uh, the moment of salvation. It's always us yielding more of ourselves to Christ, but we possess all of Christ, and you're not going to possess more of Christ at a later date. Um, We we will discover more about Christ, we discover more about Christ as we grow as Christians, and we will learn more about what it means to be in, in Christ, and to have christ in us which is the hope of glory that's a lifelong process Um, and it really is a a marvelous thing for us to be able to experience um, as we live the life that god's called us to live so again this union that we have with christ remember it cannot be dissolved it cannot be terminated because it's all based on christ it's not based on us that's why we know even when we sin you're still if you're a true believer A, you will sin. B, when you sin, that doesn't eliminate the relationship that you have with Christ. Uh, You've you've not suddenly started committing sin that's not forgiven, that that's not possible. Because when Christ died for us, he died for what? All of our sin, not just most of it. And so uh, this relationship that I have with him is one that cannot be uh, dissolved. So uh, there's even a teaching in the Bible which comes out of, I think, 1 Corinthians uh, 3. And then also when you read through John, uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and then 1 John as well. Um, We know that believers sin. We know sometimes we sin a lot. But what's super rare is the believer that sins habitually. Now, we have to be careful with that because we can define that in a lot of ways. And the Bible doesn't define that. But it does say that a true believer does not continuously sin. It does say that. So there's a teaching in the Bible... That if a believer, if a true believer, was to begin to live that way, God takes them home. Just, that's it. They're going to they're die an early death. I'm convinced that the reason why so many people who call themselves believers haven't died yet is because they're not true believers. There's no home for them to go to. God is being merciful uh, to them. So what we need to remember is, is that we always have to try to overcome temptation. We do that together as we pray for each other and try to encourage each other. We do want to sin less than we sinned before, but we will never become sinless in this life. But not being sinless doesn't affect our status as God's child. When I die, I'm going to heaven, even if I die in the middle of committing sin. If I am at one moment calling someone names and cussing them out, I don't do that, but if I'm doing that, And right in the middle of that, I have a stroke and I die. God does not say, you picked a real unfortunate time to die. You're right in the middle of sinning. How in the world am I going to forgive you? No, that, that doesn't happen. I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. There's this aspect of this total, and Paul will deal with it even more as we move on through these verses. This idea that we are completely forgiven can sometimes feel troubling because it's almost like the Bible's saying it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't say that. We say that. We feel that. But there's this free grace because there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. God forgives no matter what you've done. When I was in the jail working every day and I'm talking to a guy who's murdered a baby, I don't say, Oh, I mean, if you hadn't done that, you could have gotten saved. No. He, this person can become a believer. If, if I was talking to one guy, he was, I mean, he was, he was a serial rapist. I mean, it's, he was a kind of a disgusting individual. Um, that's what he was. But you know what the Bible says. If he truly repents and believes in Christ, he'll be saved. And we think and feel, and that guy doesn't deserve it. And you are correct. He doesn't. But nobody does. You see what happens? We know there are just certain things that are so hideous to us that we just can't imagine that God would say it's okay and let him come to heaven. But this is what you forget. God never said it was okay. Remember, how does that person get saved? Jesus died for them. Sometimes what happens, the way we think about things, we'll never say this, but it's almost as if we are saying, so let's say that Mr. Tarver here is a a serial killer. He's not. I can say that about him. He may do other things, but he's not that. No. All right. But let's say he's a serial killer. All right. The bottom line is, is that um, uh, we sometimes think that Jesus bled for me, but had to die for him. Because I'm not a serial killer. I never killed anybody, I never raped anybody, I never robbed anyone. And so. You know, Jesus did believe for my sins, but for Everett, oh, he had to die for him. Now, we we don't say that, but it's almost like that's what we're sensing, because how we judge sin. Now, I'm not saying that being a serial killer is just not a big deal. It's a huge deal, and that is horrendous sin, taking the lives of other people, absolutely. And we can even say, I think, even biblically, that his sin, that sin is worse than the sins I've committed. But remember, all sin falls short of the glory of God and all sin it, the payment deserved for that is death for all of it so we've got to, you know we've got to wrap our head around this and so there are some who've been they get a little nervous at times when they begin to think about really how free or how free flowing the grace of god is but how wonderful that is for us i think i've shared it before that uh in some cases that I guess there's certain, you know, in the lives of some people, there are certain things in their past they've done that as they grow. Because this is what happens when you grow as a Christian. As you grow as a Christian sometimes, in fact, normally our heart becomes much more sensitive to sin. And as a result, we begin at times later to feel worse for the sins we committed before. Because we realize how bad some of them really were. And sometimes we feel guilty. So one of those because I've talked to in my life, probably five or six women Where they've been believers, they've been believers for several years, and then they begin to experience a very deep sadness, a a very deep sense of unworthiness. Uh, They begin to feel like they shouldn't come to church anymore. Uh, They feel like God's not going to hear their prayers. And these five or six women that I'm talking about, what's come back to them is they've suddenly now, for the first time, not that they didn't know it before, but they're looking square at what is abortion and they had an abortion in their past. And even though they knew in a sense that God had forgiven them, now they are feeling it. And, and they're realizing that, that they, they were involved in, in the taking of a human life. And so because their hearts are so much more sensitive to sin, that, that disturbs them very deeply. And so they really go through a great struggle. How great is it to be able to express to them that number one, and, and when you, when I, you know, I. I in some of the cases, if I, how, depending on how well I know them, I'll say it, not really lightheartedly because I'm very serious, but I'll remind them, I said, you do know that when you became a Christian, God knew that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like God, it wasn't like it was hidden. You know, it's not like God saying, oh, I had no idea you did that in your past. God knows everything. So when Jesus died for your sin, did he die for the sin of taking that life? Yeah, he did. He did. Christ paid the penalty. So again, it goes back to it's not the idea that God is saying it's not a big deal. It is a huge deal. So much so that it required the death of Jesus for us to be forgiven. Yes, ma'am? Yeah, I, I like Colossians um, one twelve because it says um, about that he's qualified us. Mm-hmm. And when I see that, John and I often pray mm-hmm. to those. Correct. And once you realize that, that just exceeds it seems like for me. You yeah. know, I am mm-hmm. qualified. I have been because of what yep. Christ did. Mm-hmm. Therefore, absolutely. it's like, you know, on earth we get qualified for everything. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I, I, like, I just thought that was good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, now, what Paul brings up, he brings up a word which for some individuals they're not used to. He talks about circumcision and what's going on with circumcision um remember when paul is writing he's writing to a a congregation that's made of both jewish believers and gentile believers so the jewish believers are very familiar with the idea of circumcision the gentiles would as well kind of in a different way um but not as deeply as those who were jews and have been reading the old testament most of their life so the mosaic law as we know required circumcision um when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, remember when they, uh, when they began to the wander for 40 years, they didn't practice um, circumcision. It was neglected. Um, it was a sign that the nation had broken their covenant with God because that was a sign of the covenant. Um, when they went to enter the land of Canaan, that rite was resumed. And so Joshua was performing the ritual on a generation of people that were born in the wilderness. So the Hebrew people, they really... Um, came to take great pride in being circumcised Uh, sounds kind of strange but they were very proud of it um it was kind of a badge for them uh that they were spiritually superior to others um that their nation was superior because they were circumcised uh they they, so they viewed gentiles as being dogs and then if they called someone you uncircumcised scoundrel in the jewish mindset i mean they were really putting you down i mean you were like a dog uh, or worse, uh, when they called you that. So it was a, a, a big item or issue in their mind. And so Paul is using that he, here to help them to understand what it is that God has done. There's a, uh, in the Jewish religion, there's a, they have a lot of prayers for all kinds of things. And uh, there is a prayer that a strict Jewish male would use, maybe daily, to thank God. And he would, now I'm saying it in English because I can't say it in Hebrew, He says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a Samaritan or a Gentile. All right? Because that was the lowest thing they could imagine of being. Um, Doesn't speak well of, now, that's not a prayer that God ordained. All right? (laughs) That was just, that was a prayer they would utter uh, and would reveal the way they were thinking. But again, for the Jews, uh, to be uncircumcised, it was a term of disrespect uh, it implied that non-Jewish people were outside the circle of God's love. Uh, in fact, I, we've talked before, when you go through the book of Ephesians, there was this division between Gentiles and, and the, the Hebrew people. Part of that was because of how God designed the temple. There were certain places that even if you converted to Judaism as a Gentile, you could go into the outer court, but you could not go in the inner court. You, know, you, had, you, you just weren't allowed because you were not circumcised. Uh, And even if you were circumcised, you were still, you couldn't go in there. Um, So there's this division. So the Jews then, what they did with that was they went one step further. And and God never said he despised the Gentiles. They just couldn't go in this place because of how God had orchestrated it. And so they began to despise not only the Gentiles, and not only call them dogs, they would treat them like dogs. And they made no bones about it. And so then the Gentiles, you know, that would bother them because of this kind of prejudice. And so there's this huge wall of division between the two. And of course, Paul talks about the gospel and how it tears down the middle wall of, of partition, this wall of division uh, between them. So the circumcision is a big deal. But Paul is using it now in another way uh, to emphasize this truth about what God does for us uh, when it comes to our salvation. So God is applying this term, whether it's circumcised or uncircumcised. Um, to describe his chosen people so the terms circumcised and uncircumcised are very emotionally charged symbols um, and so it would have caught the attention of the Jewish believers again the Jews would have known the true meaning of circumcision uh, because Moses and the prophets use the term circumcised as a symbol for purity of heart and a readiness to hear and obey the Word of God and I think I have this uh, this in your notes the more significant meaning of circumcision was as, a, was as a symbol of the need for the heart to be cleansed from sin's deadly disease. So there's this idea that the foreskin of our heart needed to be cut away. You know, the veil needs to be lifted from our eyes so that we can see clearly, understand our sin, so God could take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Yes? Ain't there a the Bible where it talks about how you, that somebody done the fish scales from somebody's eyes? Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Same idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so that's what we talk about when it comes to salvation is God lifting that veil so we can see, uh, making the blind to see. It's not just what God would do for those who are physically blind, but we're spiritually blind until God takes off the blinders and we can see and understand. So this cutting, which they do in circumcision, needed to happen internally, and God was calling for the removal of the body of flesh. Which again, when we talk about the flesh as believers, we're talking about this flesh that we inherited from Adam that is, that is predisposed to sin. And the idea is to put that off or to crucify that uh, and to follow the spirit of truth and begin to pursue those things that God wants us to produce or pursue. So, so Paul is emphasizing that so he can explain what happens to all of us as believers and then why, because Christ has done all these things for us, we don't need anything else every possible thing that we need has been accomplished for us uh, internally by God himself, because we can't do these things ourselves. It's been done for us. Um, and that's what he wants him to recognize and to understand. So it seems that God uh, had selected circumcision and uncircumcision to talk about this, because circumcision uh, deals with the reproductive organ. And as one pastor said, the reproductive organ is the location of the symbol for man's need for cleansing for sin because it is the instrument most indicative of his depravity since it is by it he reproduces generations of sinners. And in any event, physical circumcision was a sign of being under God's covenant with Abraham, a covenant that was entered into by faith, not by works. We find Abraham entering the unconditional covenant with Jehovah, uh In where Moses records that Abraham believed, meaning he leaned his whole weight upon what God said in the Lord. And he reckoned God imputed Christ's righteousness or placed his righteousness on Abraham's account to him as righteousness. So one of the things that we can say is that when God looks at us, I've used this this phrase, one of my favorite ways to describe this. When, When I die and I am on my way to heaven, I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Right, so you know all those jokes you hear about you stand at the gate and Peter's looking for your name in the book and, you, and you're waiting nervously? That doesn't happen, right? The, the picture of that is, goes back to the, to the Jewish wedding. So in most cases with a Jewish wedding, when you are invited to the wedding, you're not given a paper invitation. They send you a robe, it's a special robe. It's a robe that's designed only for that wedding. So if there is, so if it's, a, if it's a closed off party, so to speak, the man who's watching the gate can tell from afar off if you've been invited because you're, wearing, because you're wearing that. You can't, whatever robe that is, especially for the party, you can't buy it anywhere else. So if you're approaching and you don't have that robe, they already know you can't come in. So they can, so they can see from afar that you've been invited and so you are welcome. And so the idea then is as a, as a uh, as a believer, because I've now become a believer, I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So when I die, and if, if there's this chronological thing of me approaching heaven, the gates are wide open for me because I am dressed in the only appropriate clothing. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's his, perfect, it's his perfection, his righteousness. I'm dressed in it. It covers all of my imperfections, and I am ushered into heaven. Uh, and so I, there's no waiting for, you for him to find your name. Uh, the gates are already open, which is good news. And, uh, and we know that. Um, and even better news is that your ability to live the Christian life properly is not a requirement to get into heaven. Now, I think people don't like that sometimes because they go, wait a minute, what are you saying? So I can just fail at the Christian life? Well, people do, don't we? We fail at the Christian life. Sometimes we fail a lot. The bottom line is, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, then you're going to get in. That is never an excuse to sin. It never means it's okay to sin. It never means it's not a big deal. What it does mean is, is your status doesn't change. Again, we've talked about this before. Isn't it the same way with our kids? None of our children ever live their life in the fear that if they mess up they're no longer a part of the family that never enters their mind because we never in, we never teach that we don't indicate that what parent tells their six-year-old now that you're six you need to understand something here's a list of sins but if you do these don't come home because you're out of the family we don't do that they're always welcome they're always a part of the family and so even when we correct them Even if we have to spank them, even if they cry because we're punishing them for what they've done wrong, again, they never think, oh no, I'm going to have to sleep outside in the yard because I'm no longer a part of the family. (laughs) In fact, sometimes, and this has come with real young kids, uh, when they're toddlers, sometimes this happens where when you, let's say you spank them, and right after you spank them, even if they're crying, you know what they want? They want a hug. You know why? Because... And they're not really thinking this, but it can seem like the relationship is in jeopardy. And so when we hug them, we are reaffirming our love for them. So then what we just did, the spanking, is discipline, not punishment. It's very different. And so it gives them a great sense of security. And that's why that's important. That's why it's really horrible. Um, If you correct your kids in anger and then they want to hug and you push them away, don't do that. If you've done it, ask them to forgive you and hug them. Right? Because you're wrong. (laughs) Don't do that, but it's it's the same idea. So if we do that in our natural family, it is that way in the spiritual family. We can mess up. In fact, if you think about it, there there may be times because you know our little wonderful children sometimes can become teenagers, and some and a lot. Now I'm not convinced that just because a kid becomes a teenager that they're horrible. I actually don't believe that, but I know they can. The potential is definitely there. All right, and so there are times when we may have. Our beloved teenager really mess up. They might get arrested. We don't say, well, that's the final straw. No, we're concerned for them. So we know that our children can mess up in a big way. And we still what? We don't disown them. We still love them. We love them unconditionally because their position is never in jeopardy. Never. And, uh, and it's the same way with us, which is really phenomenal when you think about it. I am so grateful. Uh, and so, the, so that's why the more sensitive we become towards our sin, which is a great thing, if we're, not, if, we, if we're not steeped in biblical language and reading the Bible on a regular basis, we can tend to forget that what we have cannot be altered by our behavior. And we then can begin, we can begin to have doubts uh, when it comes to God's love for us, God's forgiveness, and those things. So Paul here is saying that uh, in this spiritual circumcision, the body of flesh is taken off like an old garment and cast away. Uh, It sets us free from the dominion of the flesh and the power of the flesh. So I'm still in the flesh, but as a believer now, the flesh no longer has power over me unless I allow it. That's really what happens. Okay, When we give in the temptation, we're allowing our flesh to have dominion over us because it doesn't have it. Right. Christ has power over us. So there's that struggle. There's a lot of ways to talk about it. Some ways are probably better than others, but that's what's going on. But remember, for the non-believer, everything they do is sinful. And they, have, they, they must sin. They, have no, they, they can't help it. Because remember, everything they do is sinful. Because every moment they take a breath, that's rebellion against God, because they're not what? They're not believing. They're not believing in God. So it doesn't mean that they're all going to become serial killers, because they won't. But everything they do is sinful. Every, every action um, is sinful. But when you become a believer, you no longer have to sin. Now, I'm not teaching perfectionism because we can't get there. But again, as I said earlier, we, will, we should sin less yeah. the longer that we are believers. Um, and I also think that another thing that does happen in many cases is even our more insignificant sins or what we think are insignificant become much more significant. Because we recognize really how ugly it is. And how hurtful. Yes, MJ. Question. remember earlier when you said that all sin was forgiven. All sins forgiven except for one. No. Yes. Yeah, no. Sorry. It cannot be committed today. We've already gone through a detailed study. So I'm not going to do it now. Because it would take more than five minutes. Uh, but that, Because if you think about it. Just for a moment. If all sin could be forgiven except for One. Now you have to change your theology of the atonement, oh. and now you're in trouble. You are now a heretic. Okay. You don't want to be a heretic, all right? I that Bible, so all right, reading. it is. But yeah, well, I can give you a three-page paper that will help explain that because right, you missed good. that study. Yeah, <laughs> no problem, no worries. Uh, Something it's suicide. It's not that one either. Um, that's Catholic doctrine, but uh, it's not it's not biblical. Anyway, we'll stop there. And uh, we'll deal a little more with uh, circumcision and uncircumcision when we start off next week and uh, move on from there. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again for your kindness and your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Father, again for this union we have with Christ. It's it's incredible to think about the fact, Lord, that Christ lives in us, that he empowers us, that he loves us, that he'll never leave us, that he'll never abandon us, uh, that he's always with us, will always be there to help us that all of our sin is forgiven, no matter what we've done, and really, no matter what we will do. Uh, Father, it's just hard to, to, to swallow and, and to really comprehend, but we are so grateful, because, Father, we know that apart from your grace and your forgiveness, we stand no chance of having life after death. And So, Father, we pray that this will be something uh, that will continue to grow in us as far as our understanding and comprehending of it. We ask our Lord that you would dismiss us with your grace, that you watch over us, keep us safe. Father, we look forward to coming together on Sunday where we may worship you together, that we may seek to be encouraged and strengthened by your word and by fellowship with believers and worshiping you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.